please take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark 8. Last week we looked at the story of a, of a Gentile woman who came asking Jesus to deliver her daughter from a, a demonic power. And then in a completely separate account, a, a deaf man is, is rushed to Jesus' side for healing. And, and they were two separate instances, but they are handled in very different ways. Jesus cleanses and shapes his people in the ways which are most specific to their actual needs. Now today we have a, a second account of Jesus feeding a large crowd. And then the Pharisees confront him on the heels of that as well. And then Jesus takes the, the words in the heart of the Pharisees and he turns to apply it to his disciples so that they might learn and gain real spiritual understanding. It's actually a passage which is deeply applicable in any stage of your spiritual walk. So I'm going to pick up at Mark chapter 8. We'll read verses 1 through 21. And as we read the passage, I'll remind you that this is God's word written. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called the disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, Seven. And he said to them, do you not understand? This is God's word. Let's pray for the help of his spirit. Oh Lord, how easily we are uh, through the effects of the sin within our own hearts and the temptations of this world, the trials of our lives, how easily we lose perspective as the disciples do in this passage. How easily we forget 
And so, God, we pray that you would now send forth your word through the ministry and power of your Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear and truly give us eyes to see the Lord Jesus. Moreover, God, you know that I am a wretched, sinful, crooked stick. I pray that you would be willing again to to use me in spite of that, to point the narrow way to the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Critical scholars of the Bible often look at this account and they say, well, that's something that Mark must have invented. And then, of course, Matthew came along after Mark and he copied this down. And and the reason they say that is, of course, Jesus already fed 5,000. And when he fed 5,000, critical scholars would say, well, it was a hoax, of course, but at least the four gospel writers all recorded it and they recorded it straight. But then when Mark comes along and says, Jesus also fed 4,000, they say, well, that's a mistake. He could never have fooled that many people that many times to such a degree. Mark made this up. Well, there's another option that's actually far more believable. And it is this, that on one occasion, Jesus fed 5,000, and on another occasion, he fed 4,000. And in both instances, you could use the surrounding context of the passage to explain the purpose. In fact, there's a really deliberate pattern that takes place between chapter 6 and chapter 8. Chapter 6 and 8, Jesus feeds a multitude. And then both of these events are followed by crossing the sea and, and landing. And then both of those cases are followed again by conflict with the Pharisees, who don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. And in both cases, that's also followed by Jesus using the the errors of the Pharisees to correct and teach his disciples. And then that lesson is followed by a profound healing. At the end of chapter 7, it's a a deaf man. At the end of chapter 8, it's a a blind man. And just as chapter 7 concludes with this really profound profession, Jesus does all things well. He's made the deaf to hear. He's made the mute speak. So also chapter 8 concludes with Peter's great profession. We haven't gotten there yet, but Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ. Mark isn't confused at all. It's a fact. The disciples really were this slow to gain spiritual understanding. They were so slow to gain spiritual understanding that the entire sequence had to be repeated a second time before it finally struck the disciples. And so through Mark's pen, Peter is telling him in between the healing of a deaf man, Mark 7, and the, the healing of a blind man. In, in Mark 8, Jesus looked at all of us and he, and he said, you, you got ears, but you're spiritually deaf. You've got eyes, but you're spiritually blind. This isn't made up. In fact, it's so true to real life. It's so exactly what your own life and heart is like. It really does take a long time for disciples to to gain spiritual understanding. And so Mark tells this because every successive generation of disciples will also be slow to understand. You've got spiritual eyes to see Jesus. 
Do you ever fall blind to his presence? Do you ever fall blind to his power in your own life? You got spiritual ears to hear and you hear his word every week. Do you always live as if you heard and understood his, his character and his compassion and his provision? When you face circumstances on a Tuesday morning, which are louder than the voice you heard on Sunday morning. If you're honest, it doesn't really take major calamities or catastrophes in your life to create a hard heart or to, or to lead you to spiritual blindness. Do you want to be spiritually minded? You want to learn what it means to be a contented follower of Jesus Christ? Well, here's a passage which says you learn contentment as you trust the character of the Lord. And so we're going to divide up the passage into, into three points this morning. Compassion offered, question unanswered, and then thirdly, patient care. We'll start with this compassion offered. When Jesus fed 5,000 in Mark chapter 6, we're told that he looked at the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And here, Jesus actually takes those words on his own lips. Verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. And, and if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. Some of them have come from far away. In fact, what Mark is telling us is that the circumstances here are far more desperate than they were when Jesus fed 5,000. Back then, it was the disciples who were aware, hey, it's kind of getting late. If you could send them away, Jesus, and we could take care of ourselves. With the 5,000, it's the disciples who urge Jesus to do that. But you can tell here that would be completely impossible because the distance is so great and some of these people have come from so far away they might actually fall out on the way home the first miracle Jesus turns the question back on the disciples he says y'all feed the crowd what are you going to do about that which of course they can't but here they come to him with a question that he has already put out. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And with that question, what is Jesus doing? He's actually inviting his disciples to learn the lesson again that they missed the first time. That in the midst of actual needs, Jesus really is the only resource that is available. And yet, he's not just a resource that's available. He's all that you would ever need because he truly is the lord of the earth you should know that the background of this entire miracle is is a passage from isaiah chapter 55 it's it's a passage which is well known it's an important old testament passage you might remember it as the place where god promises to send forth his word where he promises that that word will not return void it's the very thing that i just prayed a moment ago but it's a passage which is so much more than that in Isaiah chapter 55, the, the Lord tells of how his compassion will, will move towards his people, will draw his people to himself. And Jesus takes that Old Testament passage and it, and it is undergirding everything that happens here. He speaks with that promise in view. It, it, it's a clue to those who are half blind and half deaf. And so here it is in this passage from a heart of compassion. God promised he was going to send his, disciple, send his Messiah to those in need. 
And when he promises to send them, he also sends a summons. Come, if you have need, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. You hear the spirit of an invitation, don't you? Here's bread for hungry people without cost. The feeding miracle is a, is a sign that God's compassion is revealed in this one. And he really is the Christ. But it's not just physical bread. Isaiah 55 says, I'm going I'm to take this same message to, to nations that don't know me. And nations that have never heard my name will come running to me because I, the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, would be glorified by not just simply saving one people, but by expanding the net and drawing people from everywhere. Where does this miracle take place? In the region of the Decapolis. Same place where... Jesus already dealt with a man who was possessed by a legion of demons. The same place where Jesus, in the most tender way possible, healed that deaf man who was mostly unable to speak, as we read last week. And now in the same spot, a crowd gathers, and they've been with him for several days, and they've actually been feeding on his word, which is more than we can say for the people in the borders of Israel at this moment. So this is a Gentile area. I wonder if you can see the point. Within the, the borders of Israel, people are drawn to Jesus because of his miracles. He has to go to a land of the Gentiles to find a, a Syrophoenician woman who would say, praise your name, Jesus, you do all things well, along with a crowd who would see the same thing and say the same thing. And to this crowd, he's been preaching for days, even to the point of they, they don't have food anymore. They're listening so intently. Mark's making three points for his readers. He's writing to a mostly Gentile audience. Number one, he says, only the hungry who see Jesus as the one provider will take hold of this compassion that's offered, but you have to be hungry and know that you're hungry. You see, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And sinners come in, in all varieties, Jews and Gentiles and males and females. And the compassionate Christ is, is offered broadly to, to anyone. The grace of God extends to anyone, to everyone. It is offered. The question is, who will take it? Number two, the kingdom of God will be composed of all nations. And so this miracle is a, is a foretaste of the great day in eternity when Jesus gathers his people from every tribe and tongue and language and people, and he feeds them in this heavenly kingdom from his own hand. And in the Bible, that great day is always tied to the glory of God. There's hungry sinners, says Jesus, in every nation. And I'll draw them here to me. 
And it gives God glory for me to draw them and call them and feed them and welcome them at my table as his children. So God's kingdom does what? It goes forth and it destroys all of the barriers of fellowship that men in their fallen sin nature would erect. Number three, Jesus ordained this hunger for the very purpose of displaying his compassion. Mark is very explicit. This situation is so much worse than the 5,000. Verse 1, they had nothing to eat. Verse 3, on their own. If they try to go home, they'll die. Verse 4, the disciples say it themselves. How can anyone feed this people in this desolate place? But Jesus says the point's actually much bigger than bread. I'm the one who always ordains your hunger as an invitation for you to come and see in your state of hunger, this is a God who really does have compassion. And so that means in whatever place you feel empty today or thirsty, in whatever spot you feel alone, or whatever place you feel a sense of longing, that the fact is that those seasons of disappointment the spaces of dry spells, the relational challenges, the the struggles are actual real opportunities for you and I to seek the Lord. And they're given to you for that purpose so that in learning to seek the Lord, you might actually see and find a compassionate Savior. To be satisfied upon Christ is to be content with His provision. You learn contentment as you trust the character of the Lord. So we've got compassion offered, and then secondly, question unanswered. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. I don't know if you remember who originally came to Jesus seeking a sign. It was Satan. Matthew chapter 4, at the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus is fasting in the wilderness, and Matthew says he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Satan says, give me a sign to prove that you really are who you say you are. What's wrong with a, with a demand like that? What's wrong is that Satan wants to set the agenda. As if Jesus must conform to his demands if he is to be one who is worthy of belief. Matthew 4, Jesus answers him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And not only Jesus is Jesus' response powerful, If you can hear it, it's deeply necessary for your salvation and mine. God alone sets the agenda to which Jesus must conform. And what's the agenda? Perfect, personal, perpetual obedience to the Father in heaven. And so the truth is, there is no bigger sign possible than resisting the lies and the agenda of the devil. Who could do that? The Son of God could do that. Old British pastor Dick Lucas says the Pharisees come playing Satan's game, and it's a deadly one, which is why verse 12 says he sighed deeply in his spirit. 
It's the second time we've come across a, a sigh in Mark in the last two chapters. And the sigh of chapter 7 was a, was a sigh over the effects of the fallen world on those that he loves. It was actually a sigh of tenderness. This is a sigh of, of exasperation. And you can hear it in the question, verse 12, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Jesus sighs because the deaf hear and the hungry are fed and the lame walk and the blind see and demons are cast out and health is restored and the good news of the gospel is preached. While prideful, arrogant, hard-hearted unbelief always comes to Jesus and says, one more, just one more sign, do it. It says, will you prove yourself to us? Will you show me what I demand from you? And there could be some within the sound of my voice who are still pridefully making that same demand of Jesus today your word is not enough your offer of grace and forgiveness is not enough oh I'm desperate I got all the 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 evidence that I need but I want you to show me one more sign and Jesus says behind that demand is a refusal to make a personal decision in response to the grace that has been revealed to you. In fact, it's not so much a demand as it is a declaration. I will not respond to the call of Christ. Though I'm spiritually blind, though I'm completely deaf, I prefer a false sense of self-rule to spiritual understanding and submission to Jesus. Everything I've said would obviously apply to those who are outside of Christ. But I wonder if you ever ask the Lord Jesus to prove himself to you. Do you ever ask him to prove his love and care for you? As if his word, as if his track record is not enough. Do you demand of him good things While inside your heart, there is at least some space where you're still refusing to respond to the ongoing call of a transforming work of grace in your own heart. In the end, how does Jesus deal with such persistent unbelief? Look at verse 13. He left them, got into the boat, and and again, he went to the other side. It's actually a terrifying comment because they wanted a sign, and this is a a sign. It's a sign of judgment. And it reminds you that if God takes away his word and his truth from your ears, even if you think that you are the one who has chosen not to hear him, do not fool yourself. When God's word leaves you, it's not because you're right. It's because you have proven yourself hard-hearted and stubborn and unrepentant. 
Here's the, here's the point, friends, on any given Sunday. I don't care how unworthy you feel or how sinful you know you are or how uncomfortable you are about going to church or, or getting out on a Sunday morning when you're tired or, or you have some social anxieties. You always need to hear God's word. You always need to have other disciples who are in the boat learning alongside of you and growing and failing and, and struggling at times. But that's what really makes the disciples so different from the Pharisees. Yeah, at times these disciples are blind and deaf themselves, but they keep staying around Jesus and his word and his people. And it's that bumbling, stumbling along the way that helps them know, I got to stay with Jesus. I, I, I desperately need him to be in the boat with me. I need these other brothers alongside of me. The Pharisees are what you and I would call unbelievers. They don't want to place faith in Jesus Christ, and yet from these unbelievers, you and I can draw two very clear applications. Number one, when Jesus doesn't answer your question to your liking, maybe, perhaps, he's revealing something about the condition of your heart. That's what he did with the Pharisees. And so I wonder what you're asking or demanding of the Lord right now. And if you don't have the answer, and you don't have the answer that you were hoping to get, or you don't have an answer that you like, perhaps it would be helpful for you to think on this. What does my question of the Lord reveal about my own heart? About what I trust in? About what I think would fix my condition? And then is there any lurking unbelief behind your demand of the Lord? Your question, any lurking picture of missing his goodness, failing to see his sufficiency. Number two, this sort of goes along with number one. Under no circumstances do you or I ever get to set the agenda to which Jesus must conform. You can't. And he won't. He didn't have to do more to prove himself to you. He's shown enough already. And it is true if you hear the voice of Jesus for the first time, or if you as a sincere believer are wrestling with him over something for the 100th time. Perhaps the issue is this. Will you believe him based on what he's already shown you? And that doesn't mean that Jesus may not answer your prayers. It only means that you and I don't ever start from the place of demanding how the agenda must be fulfilled. You and I learn contentment as we trust the character of Christ. We've talked about compassion offered and question unanswered. I'm going to just close with showing you patient care. What I mean, if you look at this last portion, is that Jesus is patient and persistent in the slow progress of his disciples. And I look at that part of the passage, and I think that is incredibly comforting. It's incredibly encouraging personally. Somewhere along the boat ride, it dawns on them that they didn't bring enough food. They've got one loaf of bread. And so as young guys will do, some of these are teenagers, some of these are in their early 20s. They're looking at that one tiny loaf, and they're all dividing it in their minds by 13. And they go, one loaf divided by 13 equals, I'm going to be hungry at the end of this. So they start discussing this issue, which is why Jesus says, verse 15, watch out. 
beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. It's totally real life, isn't it? In the Old Testament, the illustration of of leaven is a picture of sin. It's a picture of the flesh and the way that the flesh can express itself in my own life or yours. And so in the context, here's what Jesus is warning. The Pharisees cannot believe or trust me unless they see another sign. And so Jesus says, you've all seen plenty of signs. And Jesus says, to genuinely trust me would mean that you apply the spiritual understanding to these very tiny areas of your life. Even the uncertainty about where your next meal would come from. That's why I say the issue of this passage is an issue of contentment. Because if the disciples don't know and understand who Jesus is, and they don't understand his character, then they will live just like the Pharisees. They'll constantly doubt Jesus' power. They'll constantly demand him to prove himself to them. And so Jesus says, you know, if you don't know who I am, then you'll never be able to draw contentment from my presence in your life. And it's really supposed to be laughable when you read verse 16. They just keep arguing. And as they argue, Jesus sees that this growing yeast is a yeast of unbelief. Which is a great warning to disciples in this room. It didn't actually take a major catastrophe to reveal an underlying lack of spiritual understanding, an underlying lack of spiritual sight. It took somebody forgetting to grab the rest of the bread. What does it take in your life for you to forget the presence and the power of Jesus? For me, it takes just a few expensive car repairs, takes a couple of things breaking at the house, and then just like that, I miraculously forget that Jesus is with me. That his presence and power in my life is a promise that he is not only my savior and my king, but also that he cares for those little things. What does it take for you to forget the presence and the power of Jesus? Does it take a bad test grade? A few cutting remarks from somebody? A frustrating day as a a parent? Not getting what you wanted? Not feeling appreciated? Or maybe having to live in a spot where you actually don't know the future. And you say, I don't know what October's going to be like. And it's almost March. How am I going to navigate what I can't see? Oh, for sure, major catastrophes can cause you to lose spiritual sight. But sometimes it takes far less than that. Do you notice that Jesus just patiently pulls his disciples along? He just kind of exposes their unbelief. And he does it with just a few simple questions. I noticed and found these questions to be useful in my own life. I wonder if these questions wouldn't help me deal with my own struggles and failures to believe God's goodness and the care of Jesus. And he starts, doesn't he, in verse 17, with the content of their conversation. He says, what's consuming your thoughts? And then verse 17 For them, it's bread, of course. It may be for you expenses. It may be relational conflict. It may be your own sins. And then Jesus goes from what it is that they're discussing to the actual condition of their hearts. He says, are your hearts hardened? 
Verse 18, having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear? And so when you find yourself consumed and discontent, when you're not trusting in the goodness of Christ, that may be a good question for you to ask yourself. Is my heart hardened? I got eyes, am I not seeing something? And then he simply turns them back and says, can I remind you of what I've already done? Anybody who's ever taught children's Sunday school can completely picture this interaction. When I broke the bread, five loaves for 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? Twelve. And then then the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Seven. But you see, don't you, that when your hearts are consumed with discontent, it might help you and I to recite the past record of God's own faithfulness to you. And if you're having trouble seeing his record of faithfulness to you on a personal level, maybe it would be helpful for you to go back to the temptation of Jesus that I talked about in Matthew 4 or to go and read the crucifixion, to go and read the resurrection and say, has Jesus really been unfaithful to me? Mm, maybe not. Because they... And you and I are so often slow of understanding. Jesus connects the dots for him. Look at verse 21. Do you not yet understand? In other words, how could you possibly be anxious about having enough bread when you're sitting in the boat with God? And so I would ask you the same question. Can the Christ who fed 9,000 people on 12 loaves of bread and had 19 baskets of leftovers can that Christ not care for you from a little distance you can see the absurdity of the issue and you can apply it personally Sinclair Ferguson says this having only one loaf of bread was hardly a matter of life or death Yet its significance grew out of proportion until it filled the minds of the disciples with frustration and blinded them to Jesus' presence and his teaching. And if their hearts and eyes had been fixed on him, they might have been able to smile at their foolishness instead of blaming one another for it. Some of you may find yourself in a similar spot. And that is discontent under the circumstances that you face or somehow squirming under the providence and plan of God, which is currently playing out in your own life. Well, when you know the character of Christ, you can actually come back to those seasons. And you can remember the Lord's faithfulness. One of the great marks of spiritual growth is contentment. You learn contentment as you trust the character of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would truly do what you have promised to do, that you would send it forth, apply it to our hearts, help us grab hold of it, open ears which have been closed, open eyes which have been blind, and help us to see the goodness and faithfulness of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.